You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This past week, I was looking uh, at the Wall Street Journal online, and an article immediately caught my attention because it had this title. You don't have to be religious to feel the awe of Christmas. And the article was about an individual who grew up going to church, uh, but has walked away from the faith, Uh, still believes in God, Uh, but what they were saying is, like many of Americans, about 50% of Americans, will find themselves going to a Christmas Eve service. And he said he will be one of those. And the reason he goes is because he likes how the service makes him feel. He concludes the article by saying this. Uh, He goes because he wants to experience spirituality but he doesn't want to experience religion. He embraces the feeling, but not the theology of what the church and the Bible teaches. And I'm here this morning to argue with you that that's really impossible. That if we're going to talk about experiencing the awe and wonder of the celebration of Christ's first coming and anticipation of his return, that you cannot separate the experience from the theology in which it is grounded and rooted. And so we're to look at Psalm 90, or excuse me, Psalm 24 here to pull out from that three theological doctrines that, that are critical to experiencing the awe and wonder of Christmas. One of the comments I've made as we've gone through this series, which has been just kind of a reminder to me, Uh, we should read the psalms sequentially. In other words, don't don't read them as if one is not connected to the other psalms before it or after it. Uh, And this is a good point here. Psalm 24 is preceded by Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. If you were to look at Psalm 22, it's filled with prophecy of of Jesus' crucifixion. It describes the crucifixion act centuries before it was even invented or perfected. You have Jesus will quote from Psalm 22, when he's on the cross. Psalm 23 is probably a favorite among many people. 
the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus will pick up on that in John's gospel when he will say, I am the good shepherd. Now we get to Psalm 24, which is going to remind us of the king of glory and Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings and Lord of lords, who is worthy of all worship. So what are the, the theological truths in this psalm that are critical for us to experience the awe and wonder of Christmas? Not just one time and one day a year, but, but throughout the year. Well, look at me at verses 1 and 2, how this psalm opens. And it speaks very clearly of the fact that the king of glory rules <laughs> over creation. The king of glory rules over creation. And it doesn't take you long in this psalm, as you listen to verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You probably noticed the technique, whether you've ever thought of it this way, parallelism, which happens a lot in the psalms, uh, where one line is stated, a second line really repeats almost the same thing slightly differently for emphasis. So you notice packed into that first verse is a reminder that the king of glory rules over all creation. Because whether you say the earth is the Lord's or the world, you're saying the same thing. Everything that is created visible and invisible, he rules over. He is the king over. So we have a strong doctrinal reminder to us when we talk about the absolute sovereignty of God, that he is absolutely over everything. Notice as well in verse 2, the same parallelism, the first line says, for he has founded it upon the seas, second line, and established it upon the rivers. So he's, he's called it into being, he's fixed the boundaries of the waters, and he has established it and made it certain. What a reminder to us, whether we're talking about things in our own personal life, things in our nation, things going on globally, that, that God is the king of glory, that he is over everything. He, he reigns over his creation. But there's another aspect that the psalmist wants us to remember, and that is he not only did God call everything into being, but he sustains and preserves it. So that we call his providence. He, he didn't just make it and then sort of let it run on its own. Everything about it is sustained moment by moment by the hand and fingers of God. He has founded it and he has established it. What a, what a way to begin a psalm that is connected to a prophecy about Christ, God being our shepherd, one who cares, provides, protects for us, to now moving to this psalm kind of in enthronement language, which you're naturally just driven to look up to worship God. Much like if you're familiar with the way in which cathedrals were built, they were built to, as soon as you entered, one to make you feel extremely small, and the other is to direct your attention upwards to the sky, to, to worshiping God. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 for an, a New Testament 
sort of perspective on this concept of the king of glory who rules over creation. Because as we've seen with some Psalms, they are very direct in their messianic prophecy or foreshadowing, others that are not quite as direct. And so Psalm 24 never mentions Jesus. It doesn't mention the title Messiah. But notice in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul is describing here the, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And listen to the familiarity and language that he uses, which as a Hebrew, Paul would have been very familiar, especially with the Psalms, and we can be almost certain with Psalm 24 and what it proclaims. But Colossians 1.15 begins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We didn't know better. We might think, well, that sounds like he's describing God. But he's describing Jesus Christ. Because in reality, Jesus Christ, the Father and the Spirit, the three in one, are, are co-equal in nature. They have some distinct functions, but they all work in unison. So what is said of the King of Glory in Psalm 24 clearly is applicable to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because Paul will write there, you know, when he speaks of Jesus being the firstborn, that does not mean he was a created being. You, you let the rest of the text kind of give you the right understanding of that word. He is preeminent over everything. And so we come right back to this doctrinal truth that the king of glory rules over creation, over all of creation. But let's go back to Psalm 24. And now we'll look at a second doctrinal truth, and that is the king of glory requires holiness to enter his presence. The king of glory requires holiness to enter his presence. So he's all-powerful. He made everything. He sustains everything. Well, how, how do you go into his presence? Well, you have to be holy. So notice Psalm 24 and verse 3. Two questions back to back. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And here is helpful to get a little bit of historical background. So it only mentions this is a psalm of David. Um, but it's likely that this psalm was originated or written in the celebration of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Many of you are familiar with that story, so I, I just kind of quick overcap. Remember, they, they try to do it one time, and Uzzah is struck down dead because he touches the ark. They weren't moving it properly. And now this is the second time, and they're doing everything as God commanded. So this is a joyous occasion. You're bringing this symbol of God's presence into the holy city, 
It's a reminder that God is once again present with his people as long as they respond in obedience to him. But notice the question is, well, who, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Israelite history would remind you of the scene I just said, the scene of Moses going up to the mountain to receive the law. He, he ascended, he went up to hear God's word, to receive it, came down and his face was so brilliant, he needed to veil it because of the glory of God uh, displayed through him. So we have the historical background of this psalm that's helpful to understand, well, what is this holiness that God requires? But there's also, we might say, theological background to this. Because all of us know, if God created everything, how did he make everything? Well, according to Genesis, everything he made was good. It was righteous. It was perfect. At the end of creation, he said everything was very good. But then we know that between Genesis 1 and 2 and chapter 3, you have the fall and the entrance of sin into humanity. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3. And you have in this chapter the, the judgments that God will issue against Adam, against Eve, and against the serpent. And in those series of judgments, we don't want to miss in particular verse 15 and, and the latter part of that verse. Verse 15, it says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it's that last statement is a prophecy of really Satan's animosity and attack on this one who will come to save his people from their sins. That this was embedded in God's plan from eternity. Not, not, not an afterthought or anything like that, but this would require holiness to be in God's presence because sin has separated us from God's presence. It prevents us from going into his presence. And you can test this out simply if you know things are not right in your relationship with the Lord. You could have a hard time praying. You could have a hard time even coming to worship. You could have a hard time reading your Bible. Why? Because that's what sin does. It, it pushes distance in there. And so here you have that on a cosmic level, because of sin, we are now separated from the one who created us for his purposes. So this theological truth is very relevant. The king of glory demands holiness to come into his presence. But look again now at Psalm 24. Notice verses 4 through 6. It gives you a description of what is that holiness that God requires, that this king of glory demands. So listen to verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So you have four descriptions that jump out immediately. Clean hands, 
which emphasizes in your actions. They are, they are perfect. They were blameless. Sacrificial language. If a, a lamb was not spotless or blameless, it was not to be offered. So God's saying, here's what holiness is. Actions. Your actions are pure. But then he mentions not just clean hands, but a pure heart. Now we get to your motives and your attitudes must be without blemish or stain. And then he mentions related to those two, really right worship, those who don't lift his soul to what is false. And the third or fourth, and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, is truthful and keeps the vows or oaths that they make to the Lord. So he tells us that God demands holiness. He tells us what holiness is. But there's one thing that's in between there that we should automatically think of. We have a big problem because we're not holy, because we're sinful, because we're separated from God. So, so what do we do then? Holiness is required by the king of glory. You, you can't come into his presence without it. We're not holy. And even the reminder here of the God of Jacob. You think of, of God's dealing and faithfulness to Jacob. But, but Jacob was a manipulator. He was a conniver. And so we see God's grace there, which, which brings us to the third theological truth in the last series of verses, 7 through 10. And that is now we have the divine solution. The king of glory comes down to redeem his creation. Because notice the, the language there is God's presence is coming down. How will the people respond to that? Will they receive that presence? And, and you'll see imagery that presents it. But let me read those verses again. Uh, this is, if you're familiar with Handel's piece, The Messiah, this is one of the sections that are sung and vocalized in that, you know, who is the king of glory? But notice again the imagery. Lift up your heads, <laughs> O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So notice how the psalm has shifted now from God rules all creation to the fact that God requires holiness and we're not holy now he is going to come down. And because he comes down, there is going to be a way that we can be holy and we can receive and live in his presence. This phrase, lift up your heads, is a Hebrew idiom. Uh, it basically emphasizes to confess or acknowledge something. So to, to lift one's head, even when someone would enter a room, was to acknowledge them to confess their presence. So you have here a response of the people now to this God who has, in Christ, become poor, that we might become rich. In other words, in Christ we see that his coming down, his righteousness, now becomes our righteousness, is received by faith. 
and we had that embedded in some of the choruses we sung today, that, that Christ is our, a gift to us. Salvation is a gift. It's not earned, and it's to be responded to and received in faith through the work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit in us. Notice again this thought of ancient doors and gates. Um, they function very differently than ours. Ancient doors and gates don't go up and down. They basically just swing out or they're picked up and moved. And it is interesting, in the Old Testament, the word gates can also be used for body parts. So you can use it for your mind. You know, open your mind, open your heart, open the gate of your eyes. And so we have a picture here what will be your response to this king of glory who has humbled himself and came and lived as one of us in Jesus Christ? Listen to the words of Luke chapter 10, which we are all very familiar with, especially at this time of year. Uh, Luke, let me go rather, Luke chapter 2, verse 10 where we have the scene of the angel appearing to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2. I'll pick up at verses 10 and 11. So one of the angels gives this announcement to the shepherds. And we want to pay attention to Luke, who wrote a very meticulous account of everything that had happened. He tells you that in the preface to the Gospel of Luke. He tells you that in the preface to his second work, Acts. But notice what he says here in Luke 2. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You want to think about that personal pronoun, unto you a Savior has been born. And we need to personalize the, the message here. This is about a God who has come down to us to save us, to pursue us. Put, put your name in there. This is good news to you. And I know for, for you sitting here, you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that news should never grow old in your heart. It should be rekindled every day. Both in a little town of Bethlehem and in Joy to the World, there are lines that reference the heart. And so, for example, in Joy to the World, there's a line that says, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room. That's kind of what you see happening at the end of this psalm is, here is this God who, who will make himself known to you in a way that you can understand it. What will you do with that? in your heart. And I think sometimes we stop at the thought of, well, acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. That's step one. But, but how do we do that every day? How do we make room in our heart that other things don't crowd out? That the King of glory who has come down that we might be clothed in the righteousness of God. Well, let me give you a couple of suggestions. One is Covet communion with God. Covet time daily to, to be in the scriptures, to be in prayer. You know, the end of one year, the start of another, we know typically it's the time people make all different kinds of goals. 
And it's always a worthy goal to evaluate our, our walk with God. Where, where is the place he holds in our life? And so covet time with God in scripture and in prayer. Secondly, uh, communion with other believers. That, that has to be a high priority uh, in all of our lives as Christians. Uh, not just to sit together under the teaching of a pastor or someone else, but then times of discussion together, times where we, we take God's word and we wrestle with it to say, how, how does it apply to my life? And then thirdly, spiritual conversations. Look for ways to talk about spiritual truth. You know, read a Christian book and ask someone else maybe to read it with you. Talk about it with them. Um, Bring Christ into our conversations with one another and with those outside the church. Those are ways that we're showing that the King of glory is being received, that we are opening up those ancient doors, those gates, because we understand by God's grace who he is. So maybe as you think of Christmas and even as you celebrate in whatever way tomorrow, think about Christmas being not only how Christ has come down to us, the King of glory, but also because of how he has come down to us, we are now able to ascend and go into his presence. That we can pray, that we can worship, that we can go into his presence, and that would not be possible unless he first came down. Let's pray. Our gracious God, renew in us awaken in us a deeper and richer understanding of what we are celebrating this time of year. That there is no separating the exper experiential spirituality from the theological truth. Without the theological truth, it is just a day of emotions, a day that will be over and done with before you know it. We want to live in the reality of knowing and having and making room in our heart every day for the King of glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.